Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by um, a former graduate school colleague of mine and friend and uh, co-birthday celebrant, um, Stephen F. Knott, to talk about the lost soul of the American presidency, the decline into demagoguery and the prospects for renewal. This book was published in 2019, I believe by the University Press of Kansas. And I'm gonna ask Steve to talk to us about this sort of all-encompassing analysis of 200 years of presidents and also what the founders intended, particularly Mr. Hamilton. But first I'd like to welcome Steve Knott to the program. Hello, Steve. Hi, Lily, thank you for having me. And uh, I always remember the fact that you and I share a Flag Day birthday. So you hold a special place in my heart. You and I and the flag. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So, Steve, I'd like to ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this project on the lost soul of the American presidency. So I uh, so I received my Ph.D. at Boston College, along with you, and um, have always focused on the American presidency. I've written a number of books uh, that have some connection to the presidency, either presidential use of covert operations or a couple books on Alexander Hamilton, who obviously never served as president, but had a tremendous amount of influence in terms of shaping the office under President Washington, and of course, writing the essays in the Federalist Papers dealing with the presidency. Uh, I went on for a time, I was involved in an oral history program focused on the presidency uh, at the University of Virginia's Miller Center of Public Affairs. So, uh, and I handled the Reagan Oral History Project, worked on the Clinton uh, and Bush 41, Bush 43 projects. So I've always had an interest in the presidency. I've been thinking about this book, The Lost Soul, for some time. Um, The Trump presidency sort of gave perhaps some urgency to the project. But believe it or not, I'd actually thought about writing this book prior to Trump's election in 2016. It just struck me that uh, the presidency was kind of off the rails a bit, and I'm sure we'll we'll get into this as this interview progresses. But I've always been interested in the presidency. I mentioned in the book when I was 10 years old, my parents gave me a, one of these picture books on the presidency, and it's kind of been nonstop ever since. So, so it's, a, it's a quite some time since since age 10 that you've been studying yes. the presidency. Yes, it is quite some time. <laughs> That's excellent. Um, yes, you talk about in the book this idea of the lost soul. And and to some degree, in order to get to the lost part, one should speak about the soul part. Um, and the discussion that you have in the book is essentially the Hamiltonian idea um, for the presidency that also was to some degree inhabited by George Washington 
Um, but then as you talk about it, uh, Jefferson's entry into the presidency in 1800, um, and to some degree, his modeling of another interpretation of the presidency is really where this sort of soul starts to get lost. But could we talk a little bit first about how Hamilton envisioned it and your interpretation of it and how Washington kind of inhabited that interpretation? Yeah, terrific question. Um, I think both Washington and Hamilton viewed the world through the same set of eyes, so to speak. Um, and when the new government was being created, they both spent a lot of time thinking about how this uh, American president, how he should function, how he should deal with the public, how he should deal with Congress, just sort of basic protocol matters. Uh, if you will, even style matters in a sense. And both seem to agree that um, you, know, you wanted to avoid any pretensions of monarchy, uh, but you also wanted to avoid becoming too um, populist in a sense. Uh, so they're trying to walk this fine line between an accessible head of state, uh, but also maintaining a certain amount of dignity. And one one word you seem to see repeatedly in their writings about the presidency is this this notion of dignity. And, um, you know, again, I would argue that they struck a pretty good balance between accessibility and, and dignity. And one of the things that President Washington tried to avoid was sort of stirring the pot, uh, playing on people's passions, both Washington, Hamilton, and Madison for that matter. We're very fearful of popular passions. And um, I think they, Washington and Hamilton, envisioned an office that would uh, resist those popular passions and certainly not stir them up. And so there's a tremendous amount of emphasis in the presidency of Washington, and if I can say Hamilton as well, on, again, maintaining this dignity of acting as a head of state. Um, that's part of what I argue in this book has been lost, this head of state or chief of state role. Um, and I also make the case that we probably benefit from a restoration of that role, sort of downplaying the partisan aspects of the modern presidency, downplaying to some extent the policy formulation aspects, and heightening or reinvigorating the head of state role that Washington sought to create, which was, you know, the president was to serve as a unifying figure, not a polarizing figure. And again, Washington and Hamilton, I think, shared that view uh, co completely. And and so in that regard, we get to, of course, the presidency of Jefferson. Um, Adams had his own partisan uh, problems um, and predicaments, um, and he sort of, in, in, in a variety of ways, also left himself open to a variety of critiques with regard to the Alien and Sedition Act. So I would sort of move beyond that, in part because your book takes us to the, the, the role that Jefferson plays in kind of altering this DNA of the office. Can you talk about how Jefferson and the Jeffersonian idea of the presidency shifts this this kind of interpretation of the office. 
Yeah, I love that phrase, the DNA of the office. I should, I wish I'd, I should have put that in my book. Um, I think I got that from Sid Milkus, so oh, I can't really claim claim okay, to that. Okay. Well, that's a great line. <laughs> yeah, Jefferson, I, I make the argument in the book that while it was certainly a good thing to do away with the, the Alien and Sedition Acts, I'm not sure other aspects of Jefferson's Revolution of 1800 were particularly um, warranted, and I don't see any major public demand uh, for shifting the presidency away from that dignified, I would argue, constitutional role of the president that Washington and Hamilton envisioned towards Jefferson's presidency, which is much more rooted in the notion of the president serving as both a shaper and an implementer of public opinion. Uh, Jefferson, I think, opens the door to the presidency of Andrew Jackson and to some extent of the modern presidency by rooting its legitimacy, by rooting its, to use a Hamiltonian term, its energy in public opinion, uh, in the idea that the president is the sole nationally elected figure. He's the one who, eventually she's the one who can see the whole. Uh, he, he's the one, therefore, in a unique position to uh, speak for the majority. And as I said, to both shape and implement public opinion. And that's standing, that Jefferson presidency is standing Washington and Hamilton's argument on its head. They wanted the presidency to serve as something of a bulwark against uh, popular passions, as we mentioned in the, our first, uh, the, your first question. Um, and instead, again, Jefferson sees the president as somebody who is um, in a unique position to implement and shape public opinion, and he sees that as a good thing. He has this incredible faith in the public, which, by the way, I have to admit, is, is the source of his appeal to many folks. He certainly believes in the wisdom of the public, and he's far less skeptical of uh, public opinion than Hamilton or even Washington. So there's a just this revolution of 1800, which I used to dismiss. I always thought it was rhetorical, but the more I've looked at Jefferson, it actually was a real revolution. And in terms of its impact on the presidency, again, it was to popularize it and to move the, the office in a populist direction. And and you say, and, and you write about in the book, the way that not only Jefferson does this, but he also, to some degree, lays the groundwork for another populist president, Andrew Jackson, who really comes in and does more and pushes that further. Um, how does Jackson sort of take the reins from Jefferson, even though he wasn't an immediate inheritor of um, the, the office from Jefferson? Yeah, so obviously there were some tensions between Jefferson and Jackson and then their followers. Jefferson is much more an intellectual, much, much more a man of deep thought. Jackson is not. And there were probably moments perhaps in his quiet time at Monticello where Jefferson had some serious doubts about Jackson. But again, in my view, he does open the door. Jefferson opens the door to this populist presidency and Andrew Jackson walks in as he was inclined to do without any hesitation, uh, kicks the door completely open. And by that, I mean, 
both the campaigns of 1824 and 1828 against John Quincy Adams are, I would say, demagogic campaigns. They're, they're appealing to uh, people's fears. They are portraying John Quincy Adams as a member of a sort of invisible but powerful East Coast elite. Um, and I think the age of Jackson unleashes some very ugly uh, racial uh, resentments. Um, there's a concerted effort, I think, during the age of Jackson to disenfranchise free blacks, uh, particularly in the North, but not exclusively. Uh, so Jackson's party does see itself as the party that stands up for the common man, but it's very much a white male conception of uh, the common man. And if you were a Native American or a free black, you paid the price. And that's one of the themes throughout this entire book, that those presidents who have most championed public opinion and championing or seeing themselves as the tribune of the people, as Jackson did, uh, lots of groups have had to pay the price, lots of groups who are not part of that movement. And again, in the case of the Jackson years, it would be primarily free blacks and Native Americans. So uh, I have a lot of good things to say about John Quincy Adams, who I would argue is an underrated president. And I have a lot of negative things to say about Andrew Jackson, who I consider to be vastly overrated. <laughs> And 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 Jackson these days is is not necessarily getting high marks um, by historians or political scientists in a variety of of areas, um, and and not least of them is in regard to not only his demagogic tendencies, but as you note, who's excluded from essentially the body politic in the Jacksonian era. Um, and, you know, particularly with regard to Native Americans and as well as free Blacks. Um, but you also note in the book that Abraham Lincoln is to some degree not in this mold exactly, that his inhabiting of the presidency is one that is a little bit different, even though it's, it's also seen to some degree as a very partisan experience. Yeah, that's a terrific observation. And I, I have to say, I really wrestled with this Lincoln chapter because he clearly celebrates himself as a kind of common man. He's always praising the people, the wisdom of the people, but he's not a Jacksonian. In fact, of course, he's uh, very much opposed to the presidency of Andrew Jackson and all that it stands for. It's very concerned with the trends towards uh, disenfranchising free blacks, just towards this, this atmosphere of racial violence that begins to really show itself, not just in the South, but actually more so in the North. Um, these anti-abolitionist um, acts of violence, uh, I think even though Lincoln is not an abolitionist, he's certainly upset with what he sees as this kind of um, passions run amok, and I think in his heart of hearts would have blamed Andrew Jackson for sort of creating that environment. Yet again, at the same time, Lincoln's very much a common man, praises the common man. But in the end, I would argue that Lincoln rejects this idea that, as Andrew Jackson put it, the majority is to govern. 
you know, at all times and in all places. For Lincoln, there are certain precepts, there are certain principles that are not subject to majority rule. And those are the principles found in the Declaration of Independence. They are not up for a vote. They are not up for popular sovereignty. You know, we're not going to put the question of slavery uh, in Kansas up to the voters there. Slavery is antithetical to everything that this American regime stands for. So uh, Lincoln is an interesting mix of some elements of a kind of Jeffersonian and Jack Jacksonian populism. He certainly admired Thomas Jefferson to no end. Um, but he, I put him ultimately in the sort of Federalist camp uh, because of his support for uh, the Constitution, his devotion to the Constitution, and his rejection that all issues should be subject to some type of popular vote. Um, and I and I wanted to ask you then, as we sort of move later, because we have a, a, a number of presidents who are are to some degree um, don't have very much of of a realm to govern because of things like the Tenure in Office Act and so forth, um, but you you lay at the feet of Woodrow Wilson to some degree a lot of critique that is coming from this Jeffersonian kind of idea. Can you explain how Wilson in particular is this inheritor of the Jefferson and Jackson kind of populism and demagoguery that is anathema to some degree to the Hamiltonian interpretation of the office? Sure. Yeah. Again, another terrific question, because obviously there were differences between a Woodrow Wilson and an Andrew Jackson or a Thomas Jefferson in terms of the role the federal government should play. They're not on the same page there whatsoever should play in American life. But they are on the same page, I would argue, in terms of, again, of seeing the president uniquely positioned to view the whole to implement the, the wishes of the majority. And also in Wilson's case, uh, he sees the president as the nation's professor in chief. Um, it's going to be the job of the American president to shape public opinion, but also to implement it once it's been refined by his shaping. But again, the, 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 uh, the uh, connective tissue that I see between a Wilson and a Jefferson and a Jackson is this notion, as Wilson explicitly puts it, that the president should be as big a man as he wishes to be. In other words, there's, there's an underlying contempt for the Constitution, I would argue, for checks and balances, for separation of powers in Wilson. And there is this continued sort of, there's this continuity between a Jefferson, Jackson, and a Wilson and seeing the president um, you know, he, ha he has an obligation, in a sense, to root himself, to root his legitimacy in public opinion and uh, to serve as a spokesman for that opinion. Um, and so there's a, as I said, there's this contempt for, I think, the Hamiltonian, Washingtonian view of the, of the presidency. Uh, those guys were alive during a period of horse and buggies. We've evolved. Uh, the president needs to be as big a man as he possibly can be. And there really should be as few impediments as possible 
uh, in terms of implementing the wishes of, of, of an elected president who receives a popular mandate. And then, of course, as we move in through the 20th century, you have a number of chapters that talk about 20th century presidents. But you you particularly put um, Franklin Roosevelt in this context. Um, and again, the only president who has been elected more than twice to the office. Um, so he kind of becomes the biggest man that he can possibly be in the office. Can you talk about how in particular Franklin Roosevelt, and, and I, I know you've talked about this before, I've read an earlier paper about this, how Franklin Roosevelt is the inheritor consciously of Jefferson. Yeah, uh, Franklin Roosevelt really views himself, I think, as the second coming of Jefferson. Um, and uh, you're right, Willie, in a lot of the work I've done on Hamilton, it's really fascinating to look at the efforts that FDR put into sort of, I would argue, airbrushing Hamilton out of the founding and elevating Jefferson into the sort of holy trinity of of Washington and Lincoln. I mean, it's FDR that builds or begins the project to build the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, DC, which is a beautiful memorial. I can say that even as a Hamiltonian. Um, he lays the foundation, literally, he's the one who dedicates it in 1943. He puts Jefferson on the nickel. He puts Jefferson on the most popular postage stamp of the day. He's constantly referring to Jefferson and Jackson and seeing him self as following in their footsteps and he's constantly portraying hamilton as an enemy of the common man uh, as a closet authoritarian there are even hints at time at least by some of fdr's supporters that hamilton had these fascist inclinations there almost seems to be a question as to whether he would have supported the allied cause in the second world war i mean it's a remarkable effort to stamp uh, or to elevate Jefferson uh, into the American pantheon. Um, and it fits, again, this is why I do see a kind of continuity between uh, an FDR or Woodrow Wilson and Jefferson and Jackson. Again, noting the policy differences, Jefferson and Jackson, I don't think would have endorsed uh, the modern welfare state and a lot of large federal initiatives, but they all shared the belief in the wisdom of the public, they all shared the belief that the president was uniquely situated to speak for the public. Uh, they all had, I would argue, kind of underlying contempt for the rule of law. I realize that's a sweeping statement, but if you think about the presidents who have had major battles with the Supreme Court, perhaps not so much Wilson, but certainly FDR, Jackson, and Jefferson, all viewed the Supreme Court as a very unhealthy check on the wishes of the majority. I mean, FDR even at one point argues that the Supreme Court should, in a sense, abide by election results and urges all three branches of the federal government to march in the same direction. And the courts are part of a three-man plow team and they're not doing their, they're not carrying their load. They're not pulling their weight. So there's this, I would argue, dangerous contempt for the rule of law certainly an explicit contempt for uh, the Supreme Court. So um, that's a kind of long-winded answer, but uh, 
I see FDR certainly in the Jefferson Jackson tradition, and he certainly did too. He's the one who makes the Jefferson Jackson Day dinners, sort of part and parcel of Democratic Party lore. And and you start to note also in the book that there are some presidents who are trying to sort of push against some of this populism, and 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 you you spend a chapter with regard to Eisenhower. Um, and again, you know, sort of in the in the immediate post FDR period and post FDR Truman period, um, and Truman being himself much more of a populist individual um, than FDR and and his sort of wealthy New York roots. Um, but can you talk a little bit about when you start to see some of the or how you start to see some of these um, pushing back a bit on some of this sort of Jeffersonian lore as integrated into the presidency. Yeah, Eisenhower, I think, is an interesting character. He's one of the few 20th century presidents who um, I think did understand that more traditional view or that lost view of the American presidency. In other words, understanding the power that can accrue to a president when he acts as a chief of state or a head of state. And so Eisenhower does his best uh, to remain above the, the partisan fray. Uh, and in fact, he develops a great relationship with Senate Majority Leader Lyndon Johnson, uh, in part because of his um, lack of explicit partisanship and his reluctance to sort of stir the, the partisan pot. Um, now, look, he was also a World War II hero. He's uniquely positioned, perhaps, to act that way. Uh, he didn't have to sort of fight his way up through the political thickets to become president. Um, so that, you know, I do have to acknowledge that he perhaps is rare in that regard. But he did seem to understand and appreciate, again, that more traditional role of head of state. And he rejected explicitly uh, the politics of personal destruction. He's not a person who personalizes policy disputes, and he tended to get upset with staff members who did. Now, I realize he also selected Richard Nixon as his <laughs> vice president, and Nixon sort of carried that load for, for him. So that's a big qualification to what I'm saying. On the other hand, he also never liked Nixon. And I think part of, part of his <laughs> disdain for Nixon stemmed from the fact that he thought Nixon was sort of a uh, you know, a gutter, you know, a guy willing to get into the gutter and fight in a kind a of political dirty... hack, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think Eisenhower deserves a second look. He's been, I should say, he's been getting a lot of second looks. He frequently comes in the top 10 of those polls of presidential greatness uh, when they poll political scientists and historians. And I, you know, for the most part, I, I would probably put him there myself. And I think we do have something to learn from Eisenhower uh, that might uh, help us in the post-Trump world. And and again, I mean, you, you note this in the book, you, you write it explicitly that, you know, Eisenhower, it's taken some time also in, in the sort of retrospective exploration of the Eisenhower administration and his inhabiting of the presidency to sort of bring forward the the way he should 
much better be interpreted, I guess, um, as opposed to the initial reaction, which was, um, you know, sort of maybe a bit bumbling um, and and disconnected. But part of your argument, I think, is that 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 kind of trying to be above the politics is what Eisenhower also was probably trained to do in the military. Excellent point. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Um, and of course, as as the Supreme Allied Commander, this is a man working with this diverse Allied coalition and working with a collection of prima donnas. You know, dealing with Bernard Montgomery was not an easy thing to do. Uh, dealing with a George Patton was certainly not an easy thing to do. So he is trained, in a sense, uh, to sort of keep keep your eye on the ball, keep your eye on the goals, don't get tangled up in constant personal disputes. Um, I do think it took probably a little too long, I think, to appreciate Eisenhower. And it's an indicator, I would argue, of the success of the Wilsonian vision, the Wilsonian template uh, for the modern presidency, because Ike did not seem engaged, does not engage in these constant political battles, the assumption was that he was simply not governing. Now, as Fred Greenstein proved, I think conclusively, that was simply not the case. He was operating in a hidden hand manner. And it took 20 or 30 years in a way for that to sort of come through loud and clear. Um, but again, I would hold out the Eisenhower vision of the presidency as a, a post-Trump template for all of us. Now, Look, I also do have some criticism in there about Eisenhower. I think he was a little too hesitant to jump into the McCarthy squabble. He did work behind the scenes to try to eliminate McCarthy. Not eliminate him in body, but eliminate him politically. <laughs> As a problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I thought he was far too hesitant uh, on civil rights. There is a role, and I want to make this clear, you know, this book is not arguing for presidential silence at all times. I am arguing for more presidential silence, <laughs> but not at all times. And there are certain issues central to the existence of this regime, one of which would be civility in politics, which McCarthy trampled on left and right. The other would be this ongoing multi-century battle over the status of African-Americans in American life. And unfortunately, Eisenhower had a unique opportunity to throw his personal weight, which was substantial, and the weight of his office, and his office was widely respected at the time, behind the cause of civil rights, and he did not do so. Um, and I think that's a case where his caution, his hesitancy, his... Um, uh, older fashioned view of the office did not serve him well. And so if we move into sort of the more contemporary presidents and you talk a lot, you talk, you write about Kennedy, you write about Reagan, um, you write about um, George H.W. Bush and W. Bush and Obama and Clinton. And, and again, you know, I talked to my students about this Clinton's middle name is Jefferson. And Reagan himself calls himself a Jeffersonian. Um, and so we're still tangled in this 
Jeffersonian idea. Um, even if we don't always understand what that means in terms of the office of the presidency. Can you talk a little bit about some of these more contemporary presidents, including Nixon, um, and how both the Jefferson and the Wilson templates um, are ones that they are differently inhabiting in the office? Oh, sure. Um... Yeah, look, I think all of those names you you mentioned, plus I throw John F. Kennedy into the mix, uh, certainly shared the belief, uh, Wilson's belief, that the president should be as big a person as he wanted to be. Um, and uh, also, as you mentioned, most of those presidents that you just read to us, uh, mentioned to us, uh, would have revered Thomas Jefferson. So, Look, I understand the appeal of uh, of a presidential model that celebrates public opinion. What I'm trying to do in part in, these, in this book, and I think many of our modern presidents have not appreciated this fact, uh, I, I'm trying to restore what I would consider to be a healthy understanding of the concept of the tyr tyranny of the majority. Uh, <laughs> And I know that's a hard thing to do politically. No one wants to run for office saying that the American public can be wrong. But they can be wrong. <laughs> and they are frequently wrong. I mean, you know, if Madison you look at, says it. Yeah, <laughs> flat out. Yeah. I mean, to bring it a little bit closer to home, somewhat. I mean, public opinion polls in terms of accepting refugees from the Holocaust, were, they're not exactly a high point. Uh, in, 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 in American history. I mean, large portions of the American public did not want to accept Jewish refugees from Europe in the late 30s and all throughout the war. Uh, even entering the war itself, it takes Pearl Harbor to sort of shift that opinion paradigm. So uh, I'm meandering here a bit, but um, the celebration of Thomas Jefferson, the celebration of Andrew Jackson, which as you mentioned, that that's certainly fading fast in modern times. But in the 20th century, it still resonated pretty strongly. The celebration of public opinion, the celebration of an activist presidency, this notion that the president should be at the center of action, this notion that the president is not only the leader of the United States, but the leader of the entire free world. Uh, and you see that kind of soaring rhetoric in Kennedy's inaugural address. Uh, where all problems converge on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. That's not a healthy situation. It's not healthy for the presidency. It's not healthy for the consti or for constitutional government. Um, it's unsustainable. In a way, this book is a story about the unsustainable pattern of sort of heightened expectations that we all put on the presidency, followed by dashed hopes and further cynicism directed towards the federal government. We need to pare back those expectations. When I say we, I do mean, you know, the entire American citizenry, as well as the people who serve as our presidents. And so where do we go? We have Donald Trump, a, a person who is definitely inhabiting the office in a form that is big. Um, how we define that as big. Um, but as you note, you know, there's a celebration of sort of 
the way that Americans think and what we think about, and we can have differing, different opinions, obviously, but how does the office sort of reorient itself, particularly in this contemporary moment? Uh, it's it's going it's going to be tough. It's going to be uh, you know I wish I could say I was more optimistic than I am. I do think if you look at the American presidency over the course of 230 years, when you kick down so many norms, when you kick down those norms and traditions, a lot of times they're gone forever. And I think this current president has kicked down a lot of norms and traditions. You could argue almost on a daily basis. Um, uh, you know, I, I fear that at some point we we might get, you know, Trump squared. Um, there's no guarantee. The answer, one of the answers I try to give at the end of the book, and this, you know, it's, 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 a, it's not a magic, it's not a magic bullet, but, you know, it's just improved and increased emphasis on civic education. I'm just repeatedly stunned at, um, uh, the lack of sort of minimal understanding of how this this our government was intended to work, never mind a lack of understanding of how it once worked. And that's why I sort of wrote this book in the hopes that folks would see that there is an alternative. There is an alternative to this presidency that shapes and responds to public opinion now almost on an hourly or minute by minute basis, thanks to social media. Um, there are things we can do, and I think the past does offer some lessons on, to, on how to restore this political order and restore this office to to health. Um, but it's it's going to be a it's going to be an uphill fight, I think, because most Americans seem to me to have accepted the sort of activist, boundless. Uh, immersed in public opinion presidency. And I think even the Trump experience will not be enough to deter some folks, even on the political left, who see Trump as a danger. I think there's still going to be this love affair with the Wilsonian, Jacksonian activist, uh, popularized, populist presidency. And so part of the difficulty, I think, and, and I agree with you, I think it's it is this question of populism. And in and again, Jackson and Trump are inhabitors of that idea. Um, and, and so part of it is understanding what populism is um, as a movement, as a sort of framework. Um, and that the office itself was not necessarily meant to be a populist office. Um, but after the Cold War or during the Cold War and after the Cold War, everything centered on the presidency. Sure. How do those things get untangled? Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's an excellent point. Um, technological changes and the fact that the United States emerges as a superpower in this 20th century. Um the development of nuclear weapons, the fact that the United States lost that moat that it had for so many years that protected us from foreign attack. Now we could be hit within a matter of minutes uh, from a distant power. All of that has contributed to the heightening of expectations, the, the, the uh, 
escalation of presidential government, if you will. Yeah. This notion that the president was supposed to be the center of action. Yeah, it's 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 going to be a heck of a task. Uh, if there is one, this is my own opinion here. I'm not speaking for anybody else other than myself. If there is one good thing that might come out of the Trump presidency, despite my pessimistic comment a few minutes ago, maybe there will be uh, an increased understanding that there has to be both self-imposed limits on the presidency coming from the individual who holds the office, that character really is important in the presidency. There shouldn't be a wall of separation between character and, and the folks who hold that office. Certainly George Washington thought that character was essential, but also a renewed appreciation for the role of Congress and I, I guess arguably the courts in our system of government and just a move away from this notion that the majority is to govern govern at all times and in all places. Maybe that's the lesson that will come out of the Trump presidency. I hope so. I'm a little bit skeptical. So with that happy note, <laughs> Steve, what are you working on now? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to bring everybody down. Um, <laughs> Well, believe it or not, I am working on a book on the presidency of John F. Kennedy. Uh, it's something I've been thinking about for some time, even though I'm very critical of President Kennedy in this current book. Um, I'm very, I do have a paragraph or two where I praise Kennedy for taking belatedly, granted, but taking a strong stance on civil rights. And I'm also looking at the period between the missile crisis and his assassination in Dallas in terms of the Soviet Union and the Cold War. So it'll be a focus on civil rights and the Cold War. Um, my first job out of college was at the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston. I grew up in a New Frontier loving family. Um, I've always wanted to do this. I've kept putting it off and now I'm finally uh, returning in a way to my to my roots. So um, I'm actually on sabbatical at the moment, and I'm trying to push this ahead day by day, traveling up to the Kennedy Library in Boston to do some research. So I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you get to you get to go back to your old stomping grounds at the Kennedy Library to do archival research and. Check That's certainly the, the plan. There. Yeah. Yeah. And I've already been in touch with actually a person uh, that I hired. God, it must have been about 35 years ago, who is still who is currently uh, an archivist at the Kennedy Library. So she's been very helpful in terms of guiding me towards resource sources and providing me with ideas about avenues to pursue. So when that book comes out, will you come back on the New Books Network and talk to me about it? I would love to, Lily. This has been great. It's my pleasure to have you on the show again. Um, I've been talking with Stephen Knott, who is the author of The Lost Soul of the American Presidency, The Decline into Demagoguery, and The Prospects for Renewal. This is published by the University Press of Kansas in 2019, and I assume that one can buy it on the website at the University Press of Kansas. Any place else you want to give a shout out to, Steve? It's, it's uh, also readily available on, on Amazon, So uh, and it would make for a wonderful Christmas gift and Hanukkah <laughs> gift. 
Of course. Um, so, you know, get every, everybody needs a hot copy of The Lost Soul of the American Presidency. Thanks for joining me today, Steve. Thank you so much, Lily. My pleasure. <laughs>